This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. C-13 Originals. Donna has, for the first time, nosed in front of Brett chronology-wise. In the last episode, she graduated from Bennington. Brett has yet to start his senior year. He better hurry if he wants to catch up. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Less Than Zero is released in May of 1985, a few weeks before the end of junior year. Brett. What happened was the book took off in the summer. Brett also takes off. Paula Powers, class of 86. I went away to Oxford for junior year, and during that time, he became famous. My parents started sending me letters like, your friend Brett is being written up in... Time magazine or something. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is, to some extent, Brett's reaction to? Simon & Schuster had put out a first printing of about 5,000 copies, expecting maybe to sell half that. And I was excited nonetheless because I didn't care what it was going to sell. I was just amazed that the book was published at all. Initially, Simon & Schuster gave us no money to promote the book. So there was at first zero advertising. And yet the media was curious and started writing about the book as well as myself. And soon, for whatever the reasons are, the book connected with a large and very youthful audience who saw themselves mirrored in the book's attitude and sensibility. The impersonality and disinterestedness of Brett's word choice, curious, the media was curious about Less Than Zero, is exactly right. The book is something everybody in the media world is talking about, even if they're not, in the main, saying nice things. In fact, it's causing such a stir that the New York Times is forced to take notice. A month after Less Than Zero's debut, Mashiko Kakutani weighs in. Her opening line, This is one of the most disturbing novels I've read in a long time. The review is a pan, a sociological report, Kakutani calls the book. But it's one of those pans that's better than a rave. Brett has succeeded in, quote, disturbing the New York Times. For a writer who sees himself as a transgressor, a renegade spirit sworn to a renegade pursuit, this is the ringingest of endorsements. And it's treated as such by Simon & Schuster, at last paying attention. The quote is placed front and center in all the advertisements for which the publishing house is now eagerly shelling out. A few weeks after Kakutani's review, Brett, once again enrolled in the Bennington Summer Writing Workshop, gets word that he's been booked on the Today Show. A limo picks him up on campus and drives him down to New York City. Brett, I had the kind of stamina at 21 because I remember I was supposed to be on the Today Show. And the night before that, me and a bunch of friends went out and got so wasted. We didn't get back to my hotel room until five in the morning. And then the wake-up call came at six. Ajay Zagal is one of the friends. Oh, my God, I remember that. I don't think I've ever been that hungover in my life. In my life. 
late in New York City, like drinking like crazy and doing drugs or whatever we were doing. And I remember waking up. I, oh God, what was the hotel? It was called the um, Omni Berkshire Place Hotel is where they put us up. So I'm like asleep and Brett walks in having done it. Done pretty well, too. Here's Brett going toe-to-toe with Brian Gumbel on the Wednesday, July 10th, 1985 edition of the Today Show. The author is 21-year-old Brett Easton Ellis, a junior at Bennington College in Vermont. The novel is titled Less Than Zero, a none-too-pleasant and oft-depressing look at the aimless lifestyle of Southern California's teens, a lifestyle dominated by drugs, sex, and a decided lack of concern for anyone or anything. And good morning. Congratulations. You've got a hit on your hands. Thank you. Is your book an indictment of your generation in general or the limited few of Southern California? Um, I think it has a more universal theme than just, um, you know, L.A., California lifestyle. I think it's saying, talking about... um, uh, the whole problem right now with uh, this generation's concerns for wealth, status, style, um, a concern for money. However much you may deny it, and you have every single thing that I've read, is anyone really going to believe this is an autobiographical? No. I, well, a lot of people would like to for, you know, shock value purposes, but it's not, um, it's not like four weeks out of my life or something, no. So we know how the East Coast critics and media respond to Brett and Lesson Zero, with fascination and contempt. How, though, do other writers, in my experience, the best and most perspicacious readers, respond to Brett and Lesson Zero? Are they taking him and it seriously? Here is David Lipsky, class of 87, writer and once in future frenemy of Brett. One of the things that you notice if you're reading Lesson Zero is it is an interesting use of the Didion voice. Incidentally, Brett thinks, or maybe fears, that it's an overuse of the Didion voice. This from a conversation I had with Brett about Joan Didion and Lesson Zero. So did you ask Joan for a quote? No, 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 no. I didn't want her to read the book <laughs> because it was such a, you know, I, I was so immersed in her work and I was trying to write like her. Lesson Zero was completely under the influence of Joan um, to a degree where I had to pull back on cribbing from her, and still there are remnants of things I just stole that are still there that Joan yeah. has acknowledged. <laughs> you know, one of the first things we talked about after she'd read the book, she, you know, yeah. she made a, a kind of palpable sly allusions to things that are uh, somewhat reworded but lifted <laughs> from uh, her work, and she liked that. I mean, she was delighted by that. So Joan Didion doesn't think Brett overused her voice. And neither does David Lipsky. It's like, oh, Brett picked up that Didion profile and he took it into places that Didion wouldn't know about, basically, or that Didion wouldn't be able to find a parking space for, right? Or she wouldn't know the side entrance into. It was just a really cool, unforeseeable use of that voice. And it was a way of bringing it to younger readers. So with Less Than Zero, Brett's done a young adult version of Joan Didion's voice. Well, you could argue that what Joan Didion did was a femme version of Ernest Hemingway's voice. And that what Ernest Hemingway did was a commercial version of Gertrude Stein's voice. The line is easy to follow once you pick it up, and illustrious. Brett's thus part of a grand old tradition in American letters, originality through copycatting. And while we're on the topic of David Lipsky in Less Than Zero, I want to go back to a story David told about himself in the book in episode eight. It was the spring of 1984. Morgan Endrickin had just bought Lesson Zero, and Brett asked David to read it. 
David did, then said to Brett that if Brett published it, Brett would be embarrassed. Brett published it, and David was the one who was embarrassed. So that story has an epilogue. David. It's a funny story for me to tell friends of mine. You have a nice punchline that you are, you know, jogging towards. You put on your rhetorical track shoes and you can see the pennants flying on the finish line of the anecdote. So, you know, um, I told him that 10 to 15 years from now he would be embarrassed and then he published it and I was embarrassed. But the truth is, I'm not sure I was wrong. I thought that he wouldn't be viewed as a writer. He would just be seen as somebody who could bring us bulletins about how the culture is living wrong, basically, right? He would be like some sort of medical instrument that could say, oh, here's your problem. Of course, David nailed it. That's precisely how many critics and arbiters of taste see bread, as a cultural phenomenon rather than a literary one. Kakatani's review and the Brian Gumbel Today Show Q&A are case in point. Less than zero. Like, had Brett not published that? No, he wouldn't have been famous in the same way, or he might have had to wait for fame. But he clearly was extremely gifted. He would have been as effective a journalist as Joan Didion was. I think Brett might have been more like Joan Didion had he not published that book. And I think he might have liked that more. We'll never know. An alternate history. Brad Gooch, though, a writer like David Lipsky, understands that Brett is primarily a literary phenomenon. He remembers reading Lesson Zero when it came out. The control in Brett's work and the screeniness is what I responded to. Screeniness. I swoon to this term. Screeniness, as opposed to cinematic or movie-like. I asked Brad to explain it since he made it up. Well, if you look at 19th century novels or something, or even poets like Wordsworth, you see kind of a painting, like a painting of nature. Or if you like, I don't know, read novels of Aldous Huxley or poems of T.S. Eliot, they seem to sometimes update to being like a kind of silent movie or something. In Brett's work, when you read it, you immediately see it as like a television screen or a movie screen. Everything lit and visualized in that way. So somehow it kind of tricks your imagination somehow with very subtle cues into into like filming his works while you're reading them. So that's it. A lot of those writers who seemed like great writers who one wished to be at the time, they seem a little like stodgy. And Brett does not. And I think maybe his luck was that the television screen, you know, morphed <laughs> into iPhone screens and desktop screens. And, we, you know, now we just live, live in screenland. Like you can move from texting to reading a page of Brett Ellis. And there, there's, no, there's no disjunction. What Brad is saying, I think, is not just that you can see Less Than Zero being adapted into a movie or a TV show, but that the book itself is the movie or TV show. Now, movies have dated. With every year that passes, they seem more like a 20th century art form. Television, you know, soon will be dated. The screen, though, the screen hasn't aged a day, is endlessly, mercilessly contemporary. And somehow, 
With less than zero, Brett has managed to transform the page into a screen. Less than zero, therefore, is a new kind of novel, even as it's also an old kind of novel. We have already traced its lineage. That, at the same time, foreshadows the death of the novel. It's a kiss-off to itself. No wonder the literary establishment is bending over backwards to poo-poo it. Now, what of L.A.'s young, rich, and jaded, i.e. the people Less Than Zero is about and for? What do they make of it? Brett's friend and former Buckley classmate, Ajay Segal. It was a huge deal. I mean, it was big for everybody my age, and they're like, oh, that's us. Like, it's not you, but I mean, it, you know, it was, it was like our, you know, it was the book of the time of like, especially kids in L.A. For Ajay, the experience of reading the book is an uncanny one. Right. I remember him coming back for the first winter break and, you know, we had talked all the time. And then first winter break during that whole time, which I think is when Lesson Zero takes place. And I do remember like reading the book going, this is a conversation we had, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm a character in the book, but I would say that. I'm part of some character because verbatim things that I was saying. Brett pocketed a few of Ajay's lines, a few of Ajay's characteristics when Ajay wasn't looking. But Ajay doesn't mind the theft. And neither, so far as he remembers, does anybody else. I don't think anyone got mad. I don't, not that I know of. I mean, maybe Julie. No, I mean, it doesn't seem like she got mad. I think she probably felt good. Julie, as in Julie Foreman, Brett's Buckley girlfriend the basis for Weston Zero's Blair. And Dominic Gross, the impetus for Weston Zero's Julian, certainly isn't bothered. But then it never occurs to Dominic that Julian has anything to do with him. And why would it? Dominic isn't an addict or a prostitute. In fictionalizing him, Brett's altered him beyond recognition. Here's Dominic. I mean, back then, it was the book to read on the beach. I mean, it was nationwide. So it was a it was a really, really uh, popular thing. Yeah, so Brett did amazing then. And yet readers want to know who the real characters are. Here's John Seidel, owner of Power Tools, the hottest, hippest, baddest nightclub in L.A. in 1985, and only a year older than Brett. Brett, when we met him, we were very impressed. I mean, if someone made a book or a record, that was like very impressionable on us. Like, you wrote a book? It's like a real book? Like, whoa, dude, that's cool. The we is John and his friend, a reformed wild man who now prefers to remain anonymous. This guy, we call him the the most insane, preppy, drug-doing maniac. People would see him, like, people in the rock scene, and they were like, this guy's like some preppy guy from Beverly Hills. And then... If you got in his car, you'd literally, like, be scared for your fucking life. He would do a bunch of heroin, and then he'd go, listen, if I hit this one bump at 110 miles an hour, I can get air in my Volkswagen Rabbit. He would be telling you that while he was accelerating on a side street in L.A. in a car that was meant to do, like, 70 miles an hour. I'd be like, oh, my God, please, no. He was accelerating from like 60 to 80 miles an hour, and he casually turned to you and go, there's just this one stop sign that you have to run to be able to hit it the right way to get the air. Keep your fingers crossed as you go to like 90 miles an hour onto 110 miles an hour, and you'd just be like, you got to be fucking kidding me. John and Ajay are all at UCLA together. 
And it's through Ajay that John and meet the real-life Rip. Rip, the dealer who keeps a 12-year-old girl tied to his bedposts for friends and clients to gang rape in Lesson Zero. Ajay set it up. You want to meet this guy? He's like the guy, the drug dealer or something from Lesson Zero. We're like, sure, because wanted to meet him. We come over there, maybe like Encino or something. It wasn't like where we usually go to people's house. You know what I mean? It, it kind of had a little bit of a weird L.A. valley, maybe like Armenian-Persian vibe to it all. And um, it was like, oh, you, you know, oh, yeah, you're supposed to have all this Coke. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do your Coke for you. Even though I wasn't really into Coke, in this, doing everybody's drugs. Then like breaks out the heroin. This guy, he had never, you know, he acted like he had done it before. He did it, and it's like sick <laughs> all over the place. Totally fucked up. I'm looking like, oh my god, this is the guy from Less Than Zero. And you would think it was like some badass guy, and it was like some dorky kid who, like, you know, was some lightweight. And the he was the quintessential of all these kids. He was the legend of all of them. Not the ones that Brett used in reality. Now, his Brett's characters were great, but we met them and we're like, these people are just like, they're not cool. They're just like, like your friends and you assigned them all these like, you know, super dark attributes. The alchemical properties of Brett's imagination. He turned suburban posers into dark princes of the city. Proof, as if we needed it, that Western Zero is not simply memoir in disguise, or as Mashiku Kakatani suggests, sociological report, but imaginative literature. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's still the summer of 85, and Brett is still at the Bennington Writing Workshop when he receives a call on the house phone. It's from perhaps the only person on the planet who understands what he's going through, Jay McInerney. Jay'd gone through it himself the year before with his debut novel, Bright Lights, Big City, the pop literary sensation of 1984. Brett. In the summer of 85, Jinky had Jay call me to introduce ourselves since we were, I think, getting compared. Binky is Amanda Binky Urban, Jay's agent, who also happens to be the agent. She represents everyone from Raymond Carver to Toni Morrison 
to Nora Ephron, to Richard Ford, and soon to Brett Easton Ellis, who'll leave Joe McGinnis's agent, Sterling Lord, for her. Jay is older than Brett, but still young, 30. His best friend is Morgan Entrican, the acquiring editor of Less Than Zero. Morgan is also, and I would argue, not incidentally, an inspiration for Bright Lights Big City's Tad Allagash, the worst of the many bad influences on the book's Jay-like protagonist. Or so the rumor goes. My interview with Jay was conducted at the Gotham Bar and Grill. You'll have to excuse the background chatter, the clinking of cutlery and wine glasses, or a revel in them, since a suave Manhattan eatery seems like Jay's natural habitat. Jay talks less than zero with me. Morgan very consciously, behind the scenes, was promoting it as the West Coast version of Bright Lights Big City. So Morgan was very savvy. After I read Lesson Zero and I listened to Morgan's whole spiel about how he was going to promote it, I realized that what was happening to me was going to happen to him. Within six months of Bright Lights being published, my life was insane. My life was turned completely upside down. You were like I mean, a kind of a grad student, basically, I went, Yeah, I went from being a grad student to having paparazzi camping on my doorstep. And um, who I dated was a subject of intense national interest, apparently. Maybe not national, but to the New York Post it yeah. was. You know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and here's Jay on Brett. On the one hand, he was clearly a fairly jaded and sophisticated guy, judging from his novel. But he was kind of... He was a little socially awkward. I mean, he did not have a sort of fluid social persona. I think initially, you know, I, I felt a little like the older brother because I mean, nobody had nobody had prepared me for what happened when Bright Lights Big City was published. So I felt sort of, I don't know, felt sort of solicitous and um, vaguely, I don't know, protective of Brett, and I knew that he was going to be swept up into it all as well. Brett referred to the call as introductory, but he and Jay have in fact met. In early spring, they, along with novelists Richard Price and Emily Prager, had appeared on a pen panel on the state of American fiction. It was held at NYU and moderated by Brett's Simon & Schuster editor, Bob Asahina, which is why Brett, an unknown at that point, was on such a star-studded panel in the first place. An impromptu dinner followed. Penguin editor Jerry Howard attended. Brett came along to the lion's head. And to say he wasn't abashed, I mean, he just, okay, sure, I'm going out with all these older editors and writers. Yeah, big deal, right? There is no, let's say gee whiz was the last um, thing, or golly, you know. uh, It's just a very cool customer. One of Jerry's jobs at Penguin is buying reprint rights for paperbacks. By the time he sat next to Brett at the lion's head, he'd already been hounding SNS for a galley of less than zero for months. Ordinarily, once you ask a subsidiary rights person, can I see that a galley would appear pretty quickly? And they'll tell you everything that they can about the book how much they're spending on advertising, where they're touring the author. They'll just open up the whole mechanism of the publishing machinery behind it to show you that they are committed to it. And if you spend X thousands of dollars of your company's money to buy the paperback rights, it's going to pay off big time, okay? 
but nothing like that was forthcoming from SNS. And this is kind of like a Hound of the Baskervilles sort of thing. And I can't really prove this, but I had the kind of sense that the book was disquieting to Simon and Schuster in some way, that they didn't quite know what they had or what to do with it. In any case, <laughs> the next day, I called up Simon and Schuster and said, now look, I've gone out to dinner with your author. Will you send me the damn galley? SNS sends it. Jerry reads it. Jerry buys the paperback rights for Penguin. But back to Brett and Jay's phone call. By the time the connection is broken, they've made one. They agree to get together in the city in the fall. And then, all of a sudden, it is the fall. Brett's senior year at Bennington has begun. Crazy that Brett has a senior year at Bennington, considering college is meant to launch you professionally and he's already in the stratosphere. September, when he returns to campus, is the month Less Than Zero first hits the Times bestseller list. The logical move for him would be to drop out. But he doesn't. I wanted to graduate. And so I didn't experience that first year of whatever I might have experienced that might have killed me, judging from how I behaved afterwards. My guess is that he sticks with Bennington less out of a desire for a diploma than for normalcy, which obviously is a pipe dream. Coming back to campus in September was difficult. So I was now a senior. All my friends who had been seniors when I was a junior are gone. I was kind of alone. Very alone. Amy Herskovitz has graduated, as have Larry David, Joe Eisenstadt, and Dan Ross. Quintana Rudon has transferred to Columbia. Ian Gittler has already been gone for a year. More alienating still, Brett isn't allowed to participate as a student in certain instances. No one's going to let me in the workshop. The two teachers I talked to said, that's not going to happen. And it did not help that it seemed every day there were journalists and photographers coming. And I was kind of a problem. I was a problem something to kind of have to deal with. So, so I could feel that. Brett spends much of his time working on his thesis, a collection of short stories, with Morris Spiegel, a teacher in the Literature and Language Division, as his advisor. Mora calls her mother. I said, I'm supervising a thesis with a best-selling writer. And she said, oh, try to learn as much from him as you can. Brett's also started a new novel. I found myself hanging out with a lot of freshmen and I was writing Rules of Attraction and I realized it didn't really matter if I went to class anymore. Adding to Brett's troubles. And I also published a damn terrible piece for Rolling Stone about where I saw my generation going in the midst of the Reagan 80s. Um, Terrible piece. But... It was pretty damning of college life in America. Did not endear me. Down and Out at Bennington College appears in Rolling Stone's September 1985 issue. Amusing footnote. In that issue is an advertisement for the Rob Reiner romantic comedy, The Sure Thing, now available on video cassette. The Sure Thing itself slash herself is played by Nicolette Sheridan, 
formerly Nicolette Zavallis, the Buckley girlfriend of Dominic Gross. The piece is not particularly compelling either as journalism or prose. What it signifies, however, is compelling. It's an indirect response to a piece that appeared in the May 1985 issue of Esquire and a direct whammy to the writer of that piece, David Levitt. So in the opening episode of this podcast, I said that Brett was the Gen X progenitor, the one who charted the course for his writer peers. I stand by this statement because spiritually, it's dead on. Historically though, well, not so much. If you go by dates alone, it's David Levitt who comes first. And just who is David Levitt? David Lipsky explains. Seems like literary generations, they don't turn when the first people show up. It's weird, but then when they start to turn, they begin to turn very quickly. And so there hadn't been a lot of stuff coming from people who were young yet. And so suddenly there was a story by someone named David Levitt in The New Yorker. I think it would be like 82 or 83. And it was the first gay story that was ever in The New Yorker. Presumably there were characters who'd been gay, but it was the first story where someone was was like a main character and they were gay and it wasn't like a problem, it was sort of incidental. The short story is called Territory and it was published in the May 31st, 1982 issue when David Levitt was 20 years old, a student at Yale. Now, David Lipsky is both right and wrong to say that the story's gayness is incidental. True, Territory is not about the main character coming out as gay and his gayness isn't considered shocking or controversial. But territory is about the response of a mother to her son's gayness. Therefore, the story's gayness is, I would argue, essential. Essential to the story's appeal as well. That gayness is its topic makes it feel risky and dangerous when it's neither. If anything, the older generation, i.e. boomers, i.e. parents, should be reassured by territory because although the characters slash kids in it are rebelling, insisting on a right not available to their parents, the right to openly engage in gay sex, to openly pursue gay love, they're also still worried about what their parents think. The characters slash kids in Less Than Zero are the opposite of reassuring, are alarming. They engage in gay sex without identifying as gay, know nothing about love and care even less, and could give a shit what their parents think. And you can't say they're rebelling. Rebelling against what? Who? They don't acknowledge their parents as sources of authority, moral or otherwise, just sources of cash. In short, David Levitt is a nice boy, parent approved. And Bretty St. Ellis is a bad boy, the one mom and dad forbid you to see. David Lipsky. And then David Levitt's collection Family Dancing came out in 84. And Michiko Kakutani, who was a great reader, I thought, she got thrilled about Levitt, and she said that he had the depth and range of Virginia Woolf. Actually, it wasn't Michiko Kakutani of the New York Times, but James R. Zimmerman of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, who compared Levitt to Woolf. Still, though, Kakutani fell all over herself praising him. And the final line of her review, quote, Levitt's stories offer strong glimpses of warmth and affection, something missing in the spiritual wasteland of so much contemporary fiction might almost be an anticipatory rebuke of Brett in Less Than Zero. Not that it matters, but I respectfully disagree with David Lipsky's assessment of Kakutani as a reader. What was once said of the Times film critic Bosley Crowther, that he was someone who could, quote, always be counted on to miss the point, can, in my opinion, just as easily be said of Kakutani, 
Of course Kakutani trashes Brett. But about Brett's Rolling Stone piece, Levitt, with his Esquire piece, had declared himself the voice of his generation, declared it with the title alone, the new lost generation. And Brett, with his Rolling Stone piece about the changes he's witnessing in the student body at Bennington, an obvious stand-in for his peer group in general, is attempting to talk over that voice. And it's his voice, not Levitt's, that writers his age are tuning into. David Foster Wallace included. Jerry Howard, who scoops up the paperback rights to Lesson Zero, will, two years later, publish Wallace's first novel, Broom in the System, represented by none other than Bonnie Nadell, the assistant at Simon & Schuster, who changed the ending of Lesson Zero, now an agent. Two years after that, Jerry will edit Wallace's collection, Girl with Curious Hair, the title story of which is written in a parody of the Lesson Zero style. Says the narrator, a young Republican sadist at a Keith Jarrett concert, quote, Gimlet has observed me masturbating while I watch the English leather cologne commercial. And she agrees that the woman is very alluring and states that she would like to lick the woman's vagina for her. Gimlet is a bisexual who is as keen as anything on oral sex. Here's Jerry on Girl with Curious Hair. I read it and I thought, hey, and I said to David, really good parody of Lesson Zero. He said, no, 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 no. I, I never read that. I never read Lesson Zero. I said, okay, if you say so. But I mean, it was such an obvious lie. A flare-up of the anxiety of influence, I guess. David Lipsky wrote the 2010 book, Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, about a road trip he took with David Foster Wallace in the mid-90s, which became the 2015 indie, The End of the Tour. FYI, this is the reason I half expect to see Jesse Eisenberg whenever David and I meet up. Jesse, obviously, plays David in the movie. FYI number two, David is also, as we'll learn from that New York Magazine piece that went viral in 2019, a fixation of Instagram star Caroline Calloway a student of his at NYU before she was an Instagram star, and a fixation in part because Jesse Eisenberg was going to play him in the movie. Says Natalie Beach, Caroline Calloway's self-proclaimed ghostwriter, in that viral piece, quote, David would soon be played by Jesse Eisenberg. Caroline and I were both a little obsessed. More on Caroline Calloway later. Here's David Lipsky on David Foster Wallace's reaction to Lesson Zero. If you're a young writer anywhere, and we're talking about David Wallace here, you're reading that book pretty shortly after it comes out. And you're thinking, wait, something went wrong. That should be me. Your job as a writer is to try to be the one who is packaging stories about your era or or a take on your era. And so Brett is doing that, right? Like Brett is seen as like, this is what the 80s are like. And so you can see why that would be motivating to Wallace. Wallace has a nice phrase about this, like a blowtorch under your ass. Brett, so hot he's on fire. So hot he's setting other people on fire. Okay, so Brett said that fame has isolated him at Bennington, but it's not without its perks. Paula Powers, back now from her junior year abroad. He always had this crew of like young men around him who were sort of like fans, but he kind of liked them, you know. Larry David, no, not that Larry David, class of 85, told me this for my Esquire oral history on Bennington. Quote, 
Brett was very good at getting straight guys to sleep with him. They all wanted to be riders, and he was very charming, so he could convince them to, like, give it a try. By the way, Brett, by senior year, is no longer on the fence sexually. There was never much doubt as to which side he was going to land on, but now there's none. Gone are the days when you could catch him in the shower with the girl nicknamed Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, a reference to the 1975 Grindhouse classic about a Nazi prison guard whose sexual sadism is equaled only by her sexual voraciousness. Dan Ross, class of 85, on the Bennington Ilsa. She looked like she came out of a Helmut Newton, you know, photo shoot. Stunningly beautiful and rather tall. She had like a page boy blonde haircut, but you could see her dressed in leather and like, you know, hip high boots and a riding crop. It was not hard. The charms of adoring and pliable underclassmen, though, have their limits. And Brett finds that he's living his life more and more off campus. It was fall of 85 into 86 that I was, you know, hopping to New York a lot. He and Jay meet up in the city in September. Here's Brett and Jay on Brett's podcast discussing the occasion. You and I were invited and went to together the 1985 MTV Music Awards. MTV actually reached out and wanted us to come. If you can imagine, if you can imagine two young novelists now being dragged to the Staples Center for the, their 2019 MTV Awards and given prominent placement in the auditorium. But I do remember you had a limo. Yeah. We had dinner at Indochine after. We, we went we, to the awards, then at dinner at Indochine, and then went to the after in, party of the play. Indochine, which was the hottest restaurant in New York, and we, we, we got one of the two front booths. But this all takes me back to this time. Uh, the book party for Bright Lights Big City had Sting and Boy George in attendance, as well yeah. as Damon Miller. Norman for some Mailer. reason, John... Norman Mailer was there, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I just remember I, I had a weird book party at Limelight on a weeknight, and John McEnroe and various celebrities showed up. And it became kind of like a thing that it was kind of chic in that moment to go to a writer's book party. Literary writers yeah. in that period were trailed yeah. by paparazzi. They were in the yeah. gossip yeah. columns. Yeah. They were invited to movie premieres. They walked the red carpet. Yeah. It just seems like an alterna universe. I mean, there's a little thing in the New York Times today about a book party for Lily Annalik, which was talking. Right. Braden Carter threw it at the Waverly Inn. Right. And the New York Times was like amazed that this kind of book party even exists anymore. And I know the Waverly Inn, and I saw the guests and everything said, that is nothing yes, compared yeah, to what book parties were like. I said it too, yeah. Did you catch that, listeners? That's right. Brett and Jay just made fun of me and my party. And I could pretend to be hurt, but who am I kidding? I consider it a personal and professional high point getting publicly dissed by these two. So the reason I'm playing this exchange for you is to show just how famous Jay and Brett are during this period. Famous in a way that's impossible to imagine serious writers in the present day being famous. Famous in the way that rock stars are famous or movie stars are famous. Famous, famous. And Brett, young as he is, is ready for fame. Jerry Howard. Brett has a kind of um, jujitsu approach to, uh, he's never out there trying to impress. He's just laying back and waiting for people to notice his lack of interest in them. And there was a, a kind of perfection to the way Brett projected his jadedness. He was 22 years old, but he gave off the feeling 
of having seen it all already and more than once. And um, I think in some sense he probably had. But on the other hand, I mean, he had a sense of himself as a persona in addition to being a person. As opposed to David Foster Wallace, who I actually think was a work in progress until the last day of his life, Brett was achieved. Brett appears in the British equivalent of the Top 20 Video Countdown on MTV. Sonny Mehta uh, was the head of Knopf, uh, but he before he was the head of Knopf, he had run Picador in the UK, and he was publishing Less Than Zero. He got me on top of the pops, 10 minutes on top of the pops to, to introduce. No writer was ever on top of the pops. Brett is named one of the 10 most eligible bachelors by a woman's magazine, Paula Powers. I remember he said, yeah, so they asked me, what do you like best about women? And I said, they're boyfriends. <laughs> Not that the magazine prints his real response. He's hired by Tina Brown, then editor of Vanity Fair, to write a hit piece on Brad Pack actor and Breakfast Club star Judd Nelson. The gun for hire, though, ends up befriending his target and turning his weapon on his boss, Brett. Concoct an alternative piece about where young Hollywood hangs out, really hangs out. Not Spago and the Roxy, but the real hip places in L.A. Where would Judd Nelson and Brett Easton Ellis go to? Because, of course, being so young and hip and connected, we would know. What I didn't tell Vanny Fair is that the places Judd and I would be extolling would be the most retrograde, least fashionable places in L.A. We also threw in a couple of legitimately trendy places of that moment, Power Tools and Dirt Box. The piece ran that November. Judd and I were mentioned on the cover where Sylvester Stallone was posing with Brigitte Nielsen. And I remember opening the issue and becoming both delighted and frightened by what we had pulled off. But it wasn't long after that that the magazine found out what we had perpetrated. And from what I heard, had a bit of a fit. Ironically, a few of the places we called cool, ultimately, because of the piece, became cool. So Brett punks Tina Brown, then the most powerful editor in America. And he's not just the writer of that piece. He's the subject, too. The beautiful black-and-white Brad Branson photos that accompany his words feature him as much as they do Nelson. That November, Brett also appears in another publication, the student newspaper of Brown University, where David Lipsky is now a junior. A reporter for the Brown Herald calls Brett for a comment when the New Yorker accepts a short story of David's. And oh boy, does he give her one. Quote, David's work is perfect for the New Yorker because he specializes in very safe New Yorker sorts of stories. They're extremely conservative, middle-class Connecticut angst. David Lipsky. You know, you really do hope for um, positive coverage from your campus newspaper. And I was like, what the fuck? Why would he be doing that, basically? What I took away from that is he was still mad at me. Brett has become such a creature of the media that that's where his friends go looking when they want to find him. Larry David said this to me, quote, It wasn't easy to stay in contact back then. Brett didn't have a phone in his dorm room. We'd write letters back and forth every once in a while, and that was it. But he'd visit New York, and he was having parties at Limelight and being written up. So I'd be keeping up with him by reading about him in newspapers and magazines. With all the time he's spending in New York, Brett needs a home away from home, a dorm away from college. Amy Herskovitz, class of 85, told me this, quote, Brett would get a room at the Carlisle, 
We'd drink, do a shit ton of drugs, go to clubs. We were wild and out of control. The Carlisle, as in the Carlisle Hotel. Ian Gittler, class of 84, on the Carlisle. The Carlisle was where Mick Jagger and David Bowie had apartments in the 70s. So it had this iconic history. But I honestly think that Brett was just there because it was really nice and he knew it because he'd been there with his dad. Brett's dad, Bob Ellis, is living in L.A. and not with Brett's mom. Still, though, Bob Ellis is a dominating presence in Brett's life. Again, Amy Herskovitz. Quote, We'd see his dad in the city. He'd rent a limo and want to get drunk and high. Go out. Brett. My father, and I can't, I can't, I had friends, I think Ian Gittler came out with us a couple times. I think my father wanted Ian to find him some drugs. And um, Ian couldn't, and we were driving around in a limousine. My father often traveled around New York in a limousine. Ian Gittler on the dynamic between Brett and Bob. Bob was an interesting character. He was looking to party in New York, and he was a little bit over the top. He was a little bit conspicuous consumption. And like Brett, he could consume alcohol at a whole other level than most people. So there, you know, there was an element of danger in Bob Ellis. You know, once he had drunk to a certain level, he suddenly is this guy who has 50 or 60 pounds on you and a glint in his eye. And I guess Brett is not male in the same way. It's hard to say what was going on between the two of them. Brett sort of had the tired demeanor of just the way a young person might act with a parent that they're just kind of exhausted by. But uh, I never saw direct conflict between them. It sounds as if Brett's acquiescent, but I don't think he is. I think he's playing acquiescent with Bob Ellis the same way a possum plays dead with a fox. It's a survival technique. It's also an act of aggression. And Brett, in his sly way, is aggressive. Making the Carlisle his clubhouse? He's horning in on the old man's territory while looking like he's doing nothing at all. Ian. Once when Brett's dad came to town and we went to have dinner in the hotel, they were like, good evening, Mr. Ellis. But they were talking to Brett, not to his father. So the tide had really turned as far as who their valued customer was. An edible battle between a father and son over the esteem of the concierge. So Brett's moving up in the world, but he's also breaking down. As Jerry Howard sees when he arranges a lunch for Brett to meet the people at Penguin who will be marketing Less Than Zero, the paperback. Brett came to the restaurant and, you know, he's very polite and he's taking us in as much as we're taking him in. But what I really remember was that in very, very short order, he downed three grapefruit and gins. And then he got up to go to the bathroom doing who knows what in there. And then he came back and the disturbing part was was that there was no difference whatsoever in his affect. Anxiety becomes a problem. Brett. I was perfectly fine with wine until less than zero. Just this notion of 
I was a known person now, and I felt everyone was watching me. Panic becomes a worse problem. Paula Powers. He was having increasing panic attacks, like more and more intense. It was really doing a number on him. And then finally, one night, he called his mother and said, I can't handle this anymore. I need you. And she said, I'm getting on a plane immediately. And she was there the next day. She took the red eye. And she really helped him, you know. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And then, almost before it's begun, senior year is over. It's June, time to graduate. Brett, though, nearly doesn't. I failed a couple of stuff, I think. I failed my Dale Genji course. You know, and there was, there was a lot of talk about should Brett graduate? The Tale of Genji course is taught by Claude Fredericks, the literature and classics professor who serves as the basis for Julian Morrow and Donna's The Secret History. It's the only course of Claude's that Brett ever takes. And as you just heard, he doesn't actually take it. Flunks it, and deliberately. Claude, you know, I, Claude was just, again, I, my tolerance for a certain kind of teacher, the affectation of Claude Fredericks was, you know, the bow tie and the suits. And I just, I mean, I had my own affectations, I'm sure, but Claude Fredericks just did not interest me. But the administration decides to look the other way, and Brett is there on graduation day, listening to Donna deliver the commencement speech, and watching Jonathan, the perennial sophomore on leave, watching his girlfriend, Susan Coleman, collect her diploma. Brett's freshman year roommate, the one he couldn't abide and who couldn't abide him, Miles Bellamy, has failed to graduate. Miles is, however, attending the ceremony. Brett crosses the Berlin Wall of broken glass, now metaphorical, to ask Miles for a favor. Miles. It was something Brett and I have in common. We both had fathers who were drunk, so don't mind, stop drinking. Basically, Brett's father was so drunk and he asked me so that he could sort of focus on graduating to keep an eye on his father and take care of him. Bob Ellis sleeps it off in VAPA, the Visual and Performing Arts Building, misses most of the ceremony, but he comes to in time to make a pass at Amy Herskovitz and attend the reception, which is where he has this encounter with Paula Powers. At graduation, Brett was standing with his dad and I was 
like eating Swedish meatballs off a plate and I have blue fingernails. I came up and said hi and his father grabbed my hand and he said, oh, look at your blue fingernails. They're delicious. I want to stir my drink with them. And he dunked my hand in his drink and swirled around the ice cubes with my fingers. <laughs> I thought it was funny, you know, and I looked at Brett and he looked disgusted and he looked away. It was the first time that I really got, oh, he actually really doesn't like his dad because he would complain about his dad. But I kind of figured, well, everybody thinks their dad's a jerk you know, when you're a teenager. But he really did not like his dad's behavior, you know. So that's graduation. Graduation, though, isn't the thing. The graduation party is the thing. Brett's father throws him one at, where else? The Carlisle. Dan Ross. The invitation, which I still have, was embossed and very tasteful and sort of holly go lightly kind of way. It's kind of a thing that you would have imagined Audrey Hepburn opening with gloved hands, you know. An elegant invitation for an elegant party. You were there. Though Jay McInerney, an attendee, describes it in terms that are other than. Big rat fuck. Big rat fuck. Keska say big rat fuck, Jay. It was crazy. Somehow it became a real big deal. People were crashing in. And journalists are covering it. Jerry Howard shows up with one. I was there with Bruce Weber, who was profiling Brett for the New York Times magazine. Jerry remembers noticing that the line to the bathroom is prohibitively long. He also remembers meeting Brett's dad. Who looked rather unnervingly like Richard Nixon. But he missed Andy Warhol. From the Andy Warhol Diaries, edited by Pat Hackett. Monday, June 16th, 1986. Quote, Keith Herring had a limo, and I decided to go with him to the Carlisle for a party for the Ellis kid who wrote Lesson Zero. And as we were going in, a bald girl with a fashionable, ugly dress was going in. I'm interrupting. A bald girl in a fashionable, ugly dress? Clearly Jonathan Lethem's ex-girlfriend, Maddie Horseman, the one he shaved his head with on Common's Lawn in the summer of 84. Back to Andy. Quote, I wonder if regular non-fashion clothes are out forever. If these kids will ever dress normally. Like, you know, Phil Donahue again. It was such a cute party. Brett on Warhol and that cute party. Warhol came to my party and he came with Keith Haring. Wanted to take me in. Another two other kind of nice looking guys were straight out for the night. Brett, not without regret, declines. A New Yorker of a certain vintage once said to me, Quote, in New York in the 80s, if you were at the right party, the party you were supposed to be at, then Andy Warhol was there. And that Andy, who will be dead within the year, comes to Brett's graduation party, strikes me as significant. His presence serving as a kind of benediction. Of the occasion, yes, but also of Brett. Lisa Fader, class of 85. Oh yeah, the famous graduation party. I rode up in the elevator with Andy Warhol. That was the height of, ah, it was just Bennington and New York coming together at the Carlisle. It was perfect. It was the 80s in New York, celebrities, fame, decadence, cocaine. I mean, it was fun. Brett will start his next novel, the final installment in what he thinks of as the Less Than Zero trilogy, American Psycho, a few months later in the fall of 86. 
It should be noted that he opens it on April 1st, 1987, the day of Andy's memorial service, the rare event that stops the city cold. More than 3,000 people crowding into St. Patrick's Cathedral to pay their respects. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Jay is always so surprised that I never talked to him about my gayness, even though I had boyfriends and I certainly wasn't pretending to be straight. And so when Jim came into the picture and it became apparent that we were going to be living together, Jay noticed and it was kind of like, why didn't you ever tell me? It's sort of like, why would I? You know, it was not something that I, you know, that I identified with or defined myself by. Uh, and so I don't, I, I, I know Jay had brought this up a lot and felt, oh, uh, where's my, I thought you were a closer friend or something. And it was like, what are you talking about? This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, Production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production coordination by Terrence Malangone. Studio coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.